This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me your questions or comments to mormonawakenings at gmail.com or you can find me on Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Welcome back. You can see we've gone back to the old bumper music. I got a lot of emails and instant messages telling me the old bumper music is better. And that's what we're about here at Mormon Awakenings, responding to the people. So we've gone back to the old music. Hope you're happy. I didn't, actually didn't like the newer bumper music as well, so I'm happy too. I was at a Super Bowl party this past Sunday. Just as an aside, what is it about Mormons and Super Bowl parties? I mean, where I live, every Mormon goes to a Super Bowl party. Everybody. Stake presidents, bishops, they all do on Sunday. Not exactly a spiritual activity. Fun. I like them, don't get me wrong. Just seems, I don't know. I mean, in a way, it's sort of like the trunk or treat parties, the, the Halloween parties at the church. Halloween, if you remember, is a celebration of the occult. You know, it just seems incongruous with Mormon culture, doesn't it? Having a big party on Sunday, which basically is a celebration, a massive celebration of modern-day gladiator death sport, which is really what the Super Bowl is, right? It's the ultimate celebration of modern-day gladiator death sport. That just seems incongruous with Mormon culture. The same way a Halloween party, which is a celebration of the occult, to have a Halloween party, a trunk or treat on church grounds. Again, I like the parties. They're fun. They just It just all seems incongruous to me. So it kind of bugs the OCD side of my personality. Anyways, I'm digressing. Back to my original story. I'm, I'm at this Super Bowl party. All the people at the party were Mormons, like me. People from the ward, a couple people from the stake. During the middle of the party, one of the women said, you know, we should have invited some non-Mormons to this party so that we could show them that we're normal. And then one of the other people said, oh, Sister Jones, are you? do you mean to imply that Mormons aren't normal? To which the rest of the people at the party guffawed enthusiastically. It was an interesting comment and rejoinder, though. We should invite some non-Mormons to our party to show them that we're normal. And then the rejoinder, and its implication that we are not normal. And the round of guffaws indicating that everybody in the group felt that way too. Yes, we are normal. We want people to think we're normal, but we know that we're not normal. And we know everyone else thinks we're not normal. We're peculiar. We're peculiar people. We're conflicted about being a peculiar people in general. I mean, most sometimes we take real pride in being a peculiar people. But most of the time, as these comments at the Super Bowl party indicate, we don't like being peculiar. We want to just be normal. But our story of origin is really not a normal one. In fact, you could say it borders on being a little bit strange. So strange that when Mitt Romney was running for president back a few years ago, some of the commentators in the press thought that he was ineligible to be the leader of the free world per se because he believed our crazy story of origin. The story of Joseph Smith and the Golden Bible and the, and the angel Moroni, which is how they all pronounced Moroni. And it is a strange, I mean, it's kind of a strange story if you think about it. This kid, this hillbilly, this, this poor backwoods forest dweller living in a log cabin. He goes out in the woods one day. He's 15 years old or so, 14, 15. Goes out in the woods, prays. He's concerned about his soul. 
has some deep questions about life, about religion. So he goes out of the woods, prays, kneels down, and the results of this prayer are spectacular. Perhaps the most spectacular, incredible results to a prayer maybe ever in the history of prayer. First, this dark force almost kills him. Satan, we don't talk a lot about that part of the first vision, but that part's in there too, at least in the version that's in the Pearl of Great Price. This dark force encircles Joseph, strangles him. There's this weight on him. He thought, according to the version in the Pearl of Great Price, that this dark force was going to destroy him. So that must have been freaky. Then God the Father and Jesus Christ appear. And the light of their beings disperses all of this darkness, drives Satan away. Then they start talking to Joseph. And they say, hey, you know, Joseph, your name is going to be had for good and evil for the rest of time. Don't join any of these churches. They're all corrupted. We're going to start a new church. It's going to be the real church. Then they leave. But compared to any other prayer in recorded religious history, including Moses, including Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, including Elijah, including Saul on the road to Damascus, including the brother of Jared, and let's go outside of the canon of Judeo-Christian scripture, Muhammad, Buddha, any of these supernatural, spectacularly spiritual experiences that have been recorded in any holy book, this experience of Joseph, I think, is the most spectacular. But it, but it doesn't even stop there. A couple years later, Joseph's feeling a little bad about himself. He's a couple years older, maybe got himself embroiled in some teenage shenanigans. We don't know what those shenanigans are specifically. You know, some historical red records about money digging and drinking. Who knows what he was doing? We don't know specifically, but he felt you know, a little bad about his conduct, you know, as someone who had seen God and Jesus, you know, so he went and prayed again earnestly, this time in his house, and an angel shows up, Moroni, not Moroni, Moroni shows up, Moroni's no ordinary angel, he's the ghost, the spirit of an ancient American, one of the native peoples who lived here hundreds and hundreds of years before the white man showed up from Europe. Moroni tells Joseph of a special record that's been buried in a hill that's not far from Joseph's house, within walking distance. So Joseph heads up there, led by Moroni, not that same night, but later. He finds this record, pries open a stone covering to this kind of makeshift stone box, and inside there are these golden plates on which is engraved the record of Moroni's people. It's written in an ancient language, Reformed Egyptian, which is what the ancient pre-Columbian Native Americans used to record their history. Reformed Egyptian. Joseph reaches down to grab this record, but Moroni forbids it. Moroni says, the time has not yet come, but come back every year, the same time of year for the next few years, which Joseph does. The next few years, he goes back on an annual basis to the side of the plates, this record, and he gets a little Gets some instruction from Moroni. Then when he's in his early 20s, he finally gets possession of the records, and then he translates them. And it turns out that these ancient Americans, these native pre-Columbians, were actually descendants of Jewish people living in Jerusalem at the time of the Babylonian conquest. Some of them had escaped 
sailed across the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific. We're not sure how they ended up, which, which route they took, but they ended up in the Western Hemisphere, spread over this land for, thousand, for a thousand years, wrote this incredible record. Moroni's father, Mormon, summarized that record. Moroni wrote a few chapters, buried it in the hill. And now Joseph had it and it translated it for us. He published this translation in a book called The Book of Mormon, Tried to sell the Book of Mormon around town, throughout the countryside. Nobody really bought it, so he started giving away the books. But people were interested. It's not that people weren't interested. They were interested. People started joining this little church he founded. Center of the church moved to Ohio, then to Illinois. There were a couple of real estate bubbles along the way, some accusations of polygamy. Joseph, the founder, was killed, martyred. The group was chased out of Illinois, went west to Utah, where they practiced polygamy for another 50 years. And here we are. Well, when Mitt Romney was running for president, people looked into this story. They said anyone who believes that is a kook should not have his finger on the button. He should not be allowed to run the free world, per se. And you know, if you tell it in the way that I just did, you can kind of see where they're coming from, right? I mean, it's, it's well, it's, it's an incredible story. Mitt Romney, to his credit, had a great response to some of these people. When they would ask him derisively, do you really believe that story of Joseph Smith and the Golden Bible and blah, 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 blah? He would say, oh, yes, I do believe it. In fact, I believe things that are even crazier than that. I believe that a couple thousand years before Christ, there was a massive flood that covered the whole earth, and there was this guy who built a big boat and put two of every type of animal, insect, snake, reptile, fish, on this boat, Save them all from destruction. I believe that story. I also believe that there was this prophet, this guy, who came into Jerusalem when they were occupied by Rome and preached about repentance and love and forgiveness, and he was executed, and, but then he rose again from the dead. I believe that story, too. And Mitt Romney's point was well taken, which is this. Yes, the Mormon story is kind of a crazy one, but no crazier than any other religious story that you've ever heard that a lot of people believe, including some of you, members of the media, who are Christian, Jewish, some of you are Muslim, some of you are atheists. All of your founding stories are equally implausible, including the atheists, I might add, who believe that there is no divine guidance, no power, but rather there is just some massive random big bang, and then over millions of years of random evolution we now find ourselves walking on two legs and building computers. And that sort of shut up these critics in the media, at least as far as Mitt Romney's religion was concerned. They found other things to pick on him about, but not that. Well, after this episode, I began to think that maybe we are pretty normal, pretty typical. We have a story, a religion, a culture, a tradition of some sort, personality quirk maybe, a belief. There's something about us as a people that makes us feel different from everyone else except that all people kind of feel this way. All groups are taught a story, some guiding principles, have some traditions, some events that make them feel like outsiders. If there's one thing consistent about life on this planet is that most of us feel like we're outsiders. Most of, most of us feel at certain times in our life that we're standing off from the group and we're not part of it. There's something different about us. We're peculiar. But what's interesting is that every group feels peculiar, and every group can point to their religious traditions, 
cultural components and say, this is why I don't fit in. It turns out that the most normal part of life on this planet is feeling that you're not normal. The most common feelings that we have as human beings is that we don't fit in with everyone else. That's kind of weird. And so all the details of our stories, our family backgrounds, our personal proclivities, our personalities, our, the cultural aspects of our lives differ, differ in the details. They all lead us, all of these backgrounds lead us to the same place, this common place that we all feel of being slightly outside the group, of being unique, of being an individual. Well, a recognition of that fact brings a whole new meaning to our stories, doesn't it? It makes you rethink the whole point of any of these stories. Because if all of our stories, all of our cultural backgrounds lead us to this same feeling of being part of the group, yet slightly outside of the group, having things in common with others, but then not really, this feeling of being peculiar, well, it makes you rethink the point of all these stories to begin with, including ours, by the way. And you start to ask some very metaphysical questions about the point of the stories that we've been told that have nothing to do with the details of the stories that we've been told. Well, that gets really weird, and it freaks people out. Because before this point, we all used to think, well, the reason I'm part of this peculiar people is because I have this story, this explanation for life that is right, and no one else has gotten with the program. So I know more than everyone else. That's, that's why I'm peculiar. That's why my people are peculiar. Then you think, wait a second, everybody feels a little peculiar. It's their backgrounds, their experience, what they've been taught, the stories they've been told, their culture, that all collectively makes everyone feel a little peculiar, a little set off from the group. And you start to think, well, wait a second, my experience is not all that different from anyone else's. You get to the point where you say, you know, it's really not about the stories. It's about where we all are. We're all feeling a little peculiar, yet connected. That's a conclusion, of course, you make on your own. You don't read that in a book. And if you do, it's not a USDA-approved book from within your community whatever your religious, traditional, cultural community happens to be. So since you come to this conclusion on your own, or you read about it and process it and ultimately comprehend it because of something you've read that is verboten inside your community, or at a minimum outside of your community, it requires a little more confidence, doesn't it? It requires a little more independence, a little more autonomy, doesn't it, to hold on to that idea? Or does it because those sort of ideas become part of you and they cannot be eradicated by the old tropes you heard from yesteryear? And then the cycle of peculiarity begins again because vis-a-vis members of your own group, you are peculiar. You begin to feel like an outsider inside your own group. Also, by the way, a universal phenomenon, a universal feeling. I think we'd be shocked 
by the number of people inside our community, inside any community for that matter, who feel like outsiders, the fractal of being part of something yet peculiar and different, continuing at a more micro level. A fractal which repeats over and over. And I think there's just something to learn from that phenomenon because we are, after all, part of a group, interconnected, yet individuals at the same time. There are always things with which we have in common with the group. There are always things that groups have in common with each other, yet there are always kind of are things that make us individuals as groups, between groups, or as individuals within the group. So the question is, how should we conduct ourselves given that fact? It becomes obvious that being dogmatic about the specifics is not the way, but being dogmatic about more general higher truths is the way. This, in my view, is the New Testament period. A lot of debates about how dogmatic one should be about traditions, about the law of Moses, about diet, about what you should do on the Sabbath. A lot of debates about how dogmatic one should be about the practice of circumcision, about keeping kosher, and an effort to throw off the dogmatic handcuffs of the specific to awareness of higher truths, greater truths, truths like love, humility, compassion, forbearance. Because at the end of the day, we all are connected, yet no one feels like any of us really fit in. Got to go to a higher level. I think this is what the young boy from the log cabin who went out to pray was seeking, ultimately. Seeking these higher truths. And why was he seeking them? Because he was poor. He lived in a log cabin. He lived on the fringes of society. He felt peculiar, I'm sure. But you got to admire the kid. He sought something more. He wanted to understand more, I think. We can certainly learn from his experiences and from the books of Scripture that he produced. They will take you to a good place as much as any other tradition, perhaps much better. And if you don't think so, you're not paying attention. You're not trying. And in my view, you don't have a right to comment. That doesn't mean I'm endorsing the dogmatic defense of the particulars, of the details. It does mean, though, if you feel like you're a victim because you're peculiar, well, get in line, join the club. So does everyone else on earth. And being a victim never helped anyone. I tried to say this exact thing in my very first podcast about Kisa Gotame, whose child died. And in the process of dealing with her grief, she realized that everyone in her village had also been touched by a similar grief. She was no different. Mormons love to think that they're so exceptional. Dogmatic Mormons think they're exceptional. Disaffected Mormons, who are victims, think that they're so exceptionally exceptional, exceptionally oppressed by their people, that is. None of it is all that exceptional when compared to the experiences of most other groups on earth who have ever lived. So instead of whining, instead of criticizing, instead of complaining, Instead of pointing at other groups that aren't like you and or feeling so strange and peculiar from people that aren't like you, 
Start looking for the higher truth. Start thinking about why God puts you in the milieu that you're in. What is the divine trying to teach you from your family, cultural, religious context? And stop feeling like a victim. There's something to be gained from your experience, some plan, some purpose. It's easier, of course, to be a victim. It's easier, of course, to think everyone else is stupid. It's easier, of course, to think the world is rigged against you. Or it's easier, of course, to think that you have all the answers. You don't need to listen to anyone else. That's easier, of course. But that limits you. Limits your ability to relate to others. Limits your ability to be charitable and to be kind and to express empathy. Maybe this is why whenever the lawyers or the Sadducees or the Pharisees attempted to back Jesus into a corner and get a black and white binary answer from him, he refused. Must have frustrated him when they brought a woman caught in adultery, an obvious sin, a mortal sin, by the way. The punishment at the time was stoning to death. When they brought the woman caught in adultery to Jesus, he looked down at the ground and sort of drew a picture and stood up and said, whoever's without sin should throw the first rock. That's not the answer they were looking for. What was he saying? He was saying the dogmatic adherence to the specifics of your traditions has gotten out of hand. You've all become crazy. Maybe this woman is worth redeeming. And maybe you are too, Pharisees, Sadducees, and lawyers. When they caught Jesus pulling off ears of corn on the Sabbath day and eating them because he was hungry, they'd say, hey, what are you and your disciples doing eating on the Sabbath day? That's not good Sabbath day conduct. I guess that was the equivalent at the time of attending a Super Bowl party or having a Halloween party. Hey, that's not what we should do. That's inconsistent, incongruous with our traditions, with the details of our dogma. You would expect him to make some sort of statement about the details, about the dogma. But no, he just said, you know, the Sabbath day is for man and man's not for the Sabbath. Throwing the whole thing on its head. A statement which makes no sense unless you have a higher understanding of truth. Broader truth, more general truth, immutable truths. Likewise, whether or not you believe the story of Joseph Smith's first, first vision, you got to admire the guy's chutzpah, don't you? He goes to the minister the Methodist minister who preaches from a Bible, a Bible which tells story after story after story about prophets who are seeing these incredible visions. He goes to this minister and he said, hey, I had a vision too. I saw Jesus and God. Just as an aside, if you read Richard Bushman, you learn too that this was not all that uncommon of an experience. Other people were claiming these type of visions as well at the time during the early 19th century. So Joseph says, hey, you know, I've, I've had an experience like Elijah or like Moses recorded in this holy book. And the Methodist minister says, no, that's impossible. It doesn't happen anymore. Well, why does the Methodist minister think that? Again, whether you believe the story of the first vision or not, the Methodist minister is illogical. Makes no sense. Because how would he know whether or not Joseph Smith saw God or Jesus Christ. For me, I like the story, 
the idea that you can go out and pray, pray and have your own experiences. I love that story. Love it. Whether you believe the details of the story or not, there's a higher truth there. You can kneel. You can pray. You can get your own answers from some being that maybe set up the whole game. And the purpose of the game is way more important than whether you ought to eat corn on Sunday, be circumcised, whether or not you ought to stone an adulterist. There's something bigger going on. And the powers that be that set it all up, well, they love you and you can contact them. That's a cool story. That's a, that's a truth. That's what I believe. And again, no one is going to stand up in general conference or sacred meeting for that matter and talk about our religion in these terms, which I think is a good thing, by the way, because it makes you think harder, more deeply. Search with more energy makes you a little hungrier. And then as you step up the staircase to higher learning and understanding, you realize, boy, there are a lot of other people from my community up here too. That's kind of weird. You think you're going to end up being a closeted heretic, and you realize all the nice people, all the good people are closeted heretics too, and of course that makes sense. Because we may all be part of the group, but we're all individuals. And we're all learning and growing and adding to collective knowledge, line upon line, precept upon precept. Well, I've gone on too long. Hope you found something interesting here today. Please do contact me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or at Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Until next time.